Hello! I am Randy Andrews, and today I've got Erica Christie with me as we discuss Crocodile Dundee from 1986. We'll talk a little bit about the cast, the background, and of course the score for the film by Peter Best. It's all today on Soundtrack Alley. the show. Erica, it's great to have you on with me again. Thank you so much. I love being here. <laughs> what was your first experience with Crocodile Dundee? Um, you know, I probably saw it when I was a little kid. I don't remember specifically, but I do remember have seeing, I saw it, and I know that I saw Crocodile Dundee Part 2 as well um, at a very young age, and I'm pretty sure it was my only understanding of what Australia was for many years, <laughs> so I know that might be a little embarrassing to Australians, but to a lot of us at the time, that was really one of the only things that we knew about Australia. Hey, I totally get that. It, it was kind of my perception of Australia as well. Uh, so, so yeah, definitely. You know, I mean, that we we learned about these interesting people and that there actually was a real life crocodile Dundee. Um, I don't remember his real name, um, but uh, yeah. So. Let's get into talking on a little bit about the cast. Um, you know, when Paul Hogan uh, gave an interview uh, for Crocodile Dundee in L.A., which is the third movie in this trilogy, he put to rest the myth that there was a real Crocodile Dundee. Now, I mean, according to him, uh, he assured the interviewer that there was not and that the idea for the character came from his own head. And Hogan admitted that on a trip to New York, he felt like a complete fish out of water, and the idea began to form in his head. Frankly, I don't really believe that, but, you know, we are talking about Paul Hogan here, so maybe so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, from what I heard, there was many, many years where he was insisting that it was an original idea and he wasn't copying from, you know, some guy he heard about and as far as I know, he never, even now, has never admitted that he kind of at least partially took another person's story and kind of put it into this one. So I think he still kind of maintains it was his own creation. Ah, yeah. The Sydney Harbor Bridge that's shown at the beginning of the movie from the hotel window while Sue is on the phone to New York, uh, Paul Hogan helped paint that bridge before he started his life as an actor, and was said to have kept his co-workers laughing a good bit of the time, which is kind of cool. So, Yeah, I think he didn't get into acting until I think his mid-30s, so he had had many jobs prior to getting into acting, and as you just said, he kept everybody laughing, and when he finally started doing television, I think he actually had his own TV show for many, many years, and it was like a comedy sketch show. So it's not at all surprising that uh, he's a very funny person, because that's exactly what he jumped into in the entertainment industry. That is pretty cool. Um, and one thing I thought was neat was that he actually walked around saying good day to New Yorkers during his first trip to Manhattan, which was kind of cool because you see that in the movie, you know? Mm -hmm. So, and he had no idea that the movie would be an international success. And he said, I thought I was making a nice little comedy movie for Australia. And it was huge over here. It really was. I mean, it was a, it, it won some Oscars. It won Golden Globes. And, I mean, it won some awards. It got nominated for a couple Academy Awards. So that was kind of cool, you know? 
Yeah, I kind of saw it as life imitating art a little bit um, because, you know, like you said, he just thought it was some little, you know, Australian comedy movie. Um, and that's kind of what the character of Dundee is. He's just this regular guy. He's not flashy. He doesn't want, like, any kind of success. He's just going about doing his job. And that's kind of what Paul Hogan did when he accepted the role, just doing his job, doing this, you know, character, just kind of going about his business. And then suddenly he's thrust into success and doesn't quite know how to respond to it. So it was, it was very much life-imitating art. Yeah. Um, and then also it was interesting that Linda Kozlowski uh, was the only American on set the whole time they shot in Australia's Northern Territory, which was also interesting. Um, that I really found unique too. And it was so dangerous where they were filming. They actually had to hire armed guards during filming in the Northern Territory because of potential croc attacks. Like, so yeah, where they were filming was really that dangerous. They had to have armed guards the entire time. (laughs) Wow. I didn't realize that. That would have been certainly interesting. Um, And despite Paul Hogan's insistence on Crocodile Dundee was his own creations, he hears the whole real story. It was later revealed that the real-life inspiration for the character was Bushman Ron or Rod Ansell. Rod Ansell became popular in Australia in 1977 when his boat capsized during a solo hunting expedition, and he had to spend two months trapped in the wilderness he survived by drinking cow blood sleeping with snakes and occasionally fighting and decapitating the odd crocodile and during the latter um or later bbc interview about his adventure which he reportedly attended barefoot uh anzel mentioned that the hotel they'd put him up in was very nice and all but he decided to sleep on the floor And oddly enough, it was this little detail, not any of the animal fighting stuff, that actually inspired Crocodile Dundee. And unfortunately, Ansel didn't see assent from the use of his story and his life, and marriage fell apart, and he eventually developed a drug habit, which culminated into a shootout with police, and um, it, it even killed one. And so some say he was driven mad due to his exclusion from the success of the Crocodile Dundee movies. And the production company even banned him from starting his own Crocodile Dundee tour, which is also interesting. Any thoughts? Yeah, yeah. At the time, it just they they were trying to protect their IP, so they just didn't want another person, you know, kind of cashing in on anything, even if it was originally his life story. Again, at that point, they just didn't want to admit anything. So, it's unfortunate, but that sort of thing does happen. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. And do you remember the movie The Warriors? Um, I had done an episode of my podcast on the Warriors a while back, but there were two actors in this movie that were actually from that movie. Uh, Paul Greco, who played a New Yorker, and then John Snyder, who played the pimp. So, I found that interesting. Yeah, I did see the movie, and it's one of those movies that gets referenced all the time, but it's not, like, super clear in my head. So it's it's on my list of movies that I need to see again, just because of the amount of times <laughs> The Warriors gets referenced, just in, like, regular nerd conversation. So, yes, I've seen it. Yes, I absolutely need to see it again, because it's just a little too fuzzy for me. Yeah, it's pretty cheap to watch on Amazon Prime, so you may check it mm-hmm. out there. Mm-hmm. So, awesome. um, and then, uh, okay, so Paul Hogan stated that people in the U.S. saw his character as a cross between, <laughs> this was really funny to me, Chuck Norris and Rambo. Yeah, and you know, he actually hated that comparison. He hated that comparison because he, from him, he didn't like Dundee being compared to men that were so violent. 
Um, he is a quote saying, you know, he's a good role model. There's no malice in the fellow and he's human. He's not a wimp because he doesn't kill people. So he was actually very unhappy when people kept mentioning, you know, these guys that run around with guns. Um, I actually questioned his comment about being a good role model, though, because it was always a little sketchy. It was always a little sketchy what he did for a job because he would say fishermen. But then there was always like, you know, bullet casings lying around. Like, what was he actually doing if he wasn't being a fisherman? Or during that scene where uh, the poachers were out killing the kangaroo and, you know, she was like, you know, you need to stop them. And he's like, no, no, I don't care. I don't care. I don't want to do anything. Well, if this is like his area and his environment, why wouldn't he not want to stop poachers? Now, poachers are violent. I'm not saying approaching them was a smart thing to do. But for him, he just couldn't care less that there was poachers out killing kangaroo. So I don't know exactly how much of a good role model he was. But I can understand him not wanting the character compared to Chuck Norris and Rambo type things. Yeah, no, I totally get that, too, because it wasn't who he was like he he didn't like physically fight people on purpose. He didn't carry a gun. He didn't use a gun. The only thing he used was that giant knife. So (laughs) (laughs) that wasn't even hugely threatening. He just used it as a threat. So it it just, it made me laugh. Um, So let's, let's get into talking a little bit on the background on the film. I guess in the year 1986, Crocodile Dundee was the second biggest box office hit of that year. And uh, the Bowie knife that Crocodile Dundee used, Paul Hogan used, some were steel, rubber, and aluminum versions. And then Hogan kept one of the steel knives after the movie, promising never to sell it. And why would you? (laughs) (laughs) Well, the other things that there were a lot of fakes of on set was fake versions of the crocodiles. And actually, Hogan Hogan was insistent that they use real Crocs in as many of the close-ups as possible. And the, the producers and the production people said absolutely no. <laughs> like, that wouldn't even entertain the thought of having a Croc anywhere near what they were doing. So everything was either fake um, or the one big Croc that almost gets the girl. Um, that one was animatronic, kind of like the giant Jaws. You know, animatronic one. So, yeah, all the Crocs that you see, unless it's stock footage, all of the Crocs are all fake. (laughs) That's good, though. I mean, it's better to have (laughs) fake than real ones that would actually tear your limbs off. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm usually with the actor when they say, hey, I want it to be as real as possible. Um, But a crocodile is kind of a line that I personally wouldn't want to cross. (laughs) Like, please give me the fake crocodile. I don't need the real one. We're just shooting a movie. I don't want anyone to get hurt. So, yeah, exactly. Oh, and the the buffalo that uh, McDundee pacified in the movie, um, that buffalo was actually drugged in order to do the scene probably um that's my guess i yeah i read in one place that it was drugged but i also read an interview that uh, hogan did and he actually said that they spent the entire day one entire day waiting for the buffalo to do what they wanted it to do. And actually, it was sitting all day long, and they couldn't get <laughs> the dumb thing to stand. So I, I actually hope the drug thing isn't true, because drugging an animal for a movie is not a great thing to do. So yeah. I did read that, but I also read that he said that, no, it wasn't drugged, and they literally just sat around all day long filming, waiting for it to stand up so that they could do the scene of him making it sit down. So... I hope the second story is true. <laughs> I'm, I would, I would actually probably go with the second story more than the first. So mm. that, that that's my guess. Um, also, this picture was 
one of 50 Australian films selected for preservation as the National Film and Sound Archive of Australia's Kodak, Atlab, and Cinema Collection Restoration Project, which is pretty cool. I, I think that's, that's a neat um, project that they were able to do for that. And, I mean... 15, 50 other movies, so that's that's pretty good. I wonder if yeah, um, the man from Snowy River was included in one of those fifty. Yeah, and I was just gonna say it was beautifully shot, so I'm not surprised by that because I mean, so many movies, as you just said, were done in the American West um, that they really understood how to capture like large areas of land and really show the beauty of it. So yeah, when they did this one in Australia, like the cinematographer, like really did a wonderful job. It it actually is a very beautiful movie. Unfortunately, only 40 minutes of it takes place in Australia, which I didn't remember that <laughs> as a little kid. It's only 40 minutes and like almost an hour and a half takes place in New York. So I wished it was more in yeah. Australia, but of the stuff in Australia, it's beautifully shot. So I'm not at all surprised yeah. that it got it, uh, it, that it got put into a project like that. And honestly, I think it's a turnaround with Crocodile Dundee 2. And at some point I want to discuss that movie, but it seems like it would be a turnaround because there's less of the movie filmed in New York in Crocodile Dundee 2 and more of it filmed in Australia. So, mm -hmm. who knows? All right. Maybe maybe <laughs> well, that's what my young mind remembers more is the number two then. Because, yeah, in, yeah. When, when I rewatched re number one to do this episode, like, I just kept thinking I thought there was more in Australia. So, yeah, maybe my mind is thinking about the second one more so. Yeah, yeah. And... The uh, the quotes around Crocodile, of course, were added for the American release to ensure people didn't think that Dundee was a crocodile. And I don't know why people would think that Dundee would be a crocodile. It just, I don't know, that doesn't make much sense to me. So, um, Unfortunately, they just had to dumb it down for the Americans, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> And then it's interesting that this was a feature film debut for Paul Hogan and Linda Kozlowski. Now, was Linda Kozlowski in any other films other than the Dundee series? Do you know? You know, I actually don't know the answer to that. I didn't look her up super well. Okay. She's probably, just, she's probably in something. Yeah, she probably is. Yeah, but I feel I'm not I feel sure like what. she had done a I think she had done a lot of television prior to the movie. So I think that is why it was it was her movie debut. I think she did a lot of TV. Yeah. Cuz after Crocodile Dundee, um Paul Hogan did a few other American movies such as Andre, he did Lightning Jack and a couple others that I can't remember. But pretty interesting. So. Oh, you know what? I, I just had a thought. Linda graduated from Juilliard, so I think she was spending most of her time on the stage. Oh, okay. So I, she, she probably did a few other movies, but I think she spends more time uh, doing theater work. Oh, yeah. I, I could see that. Um, this movie is the fifth most watched to be broadcast on British television. Um and it was in 1989, and then it attracted 21.75 million viewers. That's actually pretty awesome for it being the most watched film to be shown on the BBC. Those are actually the numbers that Roseanne was getting during the late 80s and early oh, 90s. Man. Roseanne was getting 20 to 22 million. So if that's what Crocodile Dundee got, then that is very impressive. Yeah. Yeah, that is pretty cool. Um, also, uh, for when they did the scenes in the outback, they slept in huts near a miner's camp. I thought that was interesting. So that would have been certainly roughing it. 
Yeah, you mean they they didn't have fancy trailers like they do nowadays for movies? <laughs> Where was that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, so so Randy, I haven't heard you say a particular piece of trivia, so I feel like you don't know it. But did you know that in the early '90s, uh, Paramount wanted to do a crossover movie with Crocodile Dundee and something else? Did you know that? No. What was it? <laughs> uh, I, I can't wait to hear your reaction to this. Uh, they pitched to the lead actor doing Crocodile Dundee crossed with Beverly Hills Cop. What? <laughs> and Eddie Murphy freaked out and said, absolutely not. He refused to do it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That that would just not work. Uh, uh, oh my goodness! When, How... when I read that, I I laughed so hard I think I almost cried. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I oh just my and then I started I started coming up in my head with scenarios as to what that movie would be like, and they all frightened me. Every single one of them. <laughs> yeah, that would frighten me too. <laughs> Because that just is not a good idea. Oh my goodness, that's not a good idea. Wow. It it would have been like Rush Hour, but not funny. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and there were even rumors that they were making a Rush Hour 4. So, mm. that just doesn't work yeah. either. Oh man, Wow. That's that's good trivia. That is good trivia. You're well. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't entirely sure it was true, but I found it in more than one place, and I thought this is just far too good to pass up. Yeah, yeah, that is far too good to pass up. Man, that's crazy. <laughs> All right. <laughs> oh, and to get toward a little bit of the New York stuff, um, they used an abandoned lower level of the BMT 9th Avenue station in Brooklyn for the subway scene near the end of the film. And the route information signs were correct for service at 59th Street, Columbus Circle, and they had to have a double letter route markings dropped off by the time the movie was released. And so it just, you know, they used actual authentic places underground, you know, for the subway area in New York, which was good. You know, it made it feel like it was a more authentic uh, feeling for that movie. So I, I like that. And mm. uh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's always more money trying to shoot on location, but it always adds so much to the authenticity of, you know, what you're filming, both for, like, the production design and for the actors to work in. So, I mean, anytime you can be on location, it's usually suggested that you do so. Yeah. And in 2016, of course, there was a rumored movie that was to be rebooted. Now, still, people go back and forth between that fake trailer <laughs> that's been going around called Dundee. And from the information that I've read on several different news sites, and I made sure that they aren't fake, that are actually reporting the news, um, that it is a fake movie, and it is just an advertising gimmick for Australia. Um even though they use, like, Chris Hemsworth and stuff like that. So it's like, okay. So hopefully, I mean, hopefully it is a gimmick. <laughs> but maybe they're going to pull the wool over everybody's eyes and actually release it. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Australia has been using the whole, you know, Dundee 
theme um, for advertising, for tourism, for just promoting Australia for, you know, 30 years now. So I'm not surprised that they did that because that's just, I mean, that's just money in the bank, literally, for them just using this character everybody already loves and that is so well associated with Australia. Um, And yeah, putting Hemsworth in is just kind of a little extra giggle um, to all, you know, all his fans out there. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that, I mean, with, I mean, honestly, Chris or Liam Hemsworth would have been really good to uh, be (laughs) in relation to characters portraying uh, Crocodile Dundee. You know, if they were to do a real life, you know, new movie. Um, it just would make much more sense than have the well, actor their, that their they elder were going brother would have been great too. Yeah. yeah, they have an elder brother, and he would have been great as Mick as well. Um, he's been doing some really great work on Westworld. Oh, okay, okay. I've not watched that, so I don't, I don't have any frame of reference, unfortunately. So, well, let's let's talk a, oh, a bit about the score. Oh, he was also he was. Go ahead. When he was, I'm sure you have seen him. He was in Thor Ragnarok. I assume you've seen it. Okay. He, in the scene with Matt Damon playing Loki, uh, the the elder brother, he's the one who's pretending to be Thor. That's actually Chris's elder brother. (gasps) That's pretending to be him. Okay. (laughs) That was a hilarious scene, too. That was just great. So, Yeah. You know, one thing when I think about uh, Australian composers and knowing that this score was uh, composed by Peter Best, um, I think about, you know, another movie that was actually made, I think it was, well, it was three years prior, and it was The Man from Snowy River, and they used Bruce Rowland, but it's like they have very kind of similar styles when they're doing the um like the scenery you know like when peter breast is doing the scenery parts of australia he does it really well you know you you really get the feeling that you're in this barren country and you know it's it's very open and uh wide and you know it's really beautiful to me i i really like that and um I think it's it's a nice score that has a blend of like Australian music and New York hip hop from like 1986. Um, even elements of the score blending that feeling of the city with even having the Australian viewpoint. And then also having that wonderful instrument of the didgeridoo. <laughs> Yeah, I was out. always a huge fan, and quite quite a few of the tracks that Didgeridoo kind of starts out, and then other things slowly fade in. Um, I, I really enjoyed that, and then also there's certain times in the movie where there isn't actual music playing, um, but, but you can hear the Didgeridoo mm-hmm. very faintly in the background. And that happens both in the Australia scenes and in the New York scenes, and it just kind of like, just kind of throws you back into the outback even if he's walking down you know a road in new york you hear that didgeridoo and you just can kind of tell in his head he's still kind of walking around in australia there's just a lot more people around him oh yeah yeah definitely it's just it's really really well done so i'd like to play a few cues today um the first are the opening titles the walkabout bounce and in the truck Erica, what do you think of these cues? Um, I really like the opening titles, and to me, it felt like a Western theme, but like an Australian version of an American Western theme. Like that's that's just what it felt like. That you know, as I just said, like the didgeridoo fading into a guitar, and then the song just kind of kicks off and it goes from there. So yeah, it just it just felt like an Australian Western, and I really enjoyed that. Um, the walkabout bounce was fun. 
it was just like straight up 1980s synth guitar, lots of saxophone. Um, it felt like Best was just going for fun, and and I mean that's kind of what Dundee oh, yeah. is. Like he could have been terrified, he could have been terrified being in New York, but instead he chose to kind of alter his mindset and just be like, hey, this is going to be fun. I'm just going to you know walk around and see what happens, and that's just kind of what that whole song is. Is just him deciding that New York is going to be fun, and he just goes about his business. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So let's go ahead and play those cues.
All right, so next, I'd like to play Mick Meets New York, G'day, and The Pimp. Now, to me, these really illustrate how Mick is really at home in either Australia or New York City, and both have a jungle type of their own. Um, Erica, what do you think of these? Uh, yeah, the the first one and the third one, Mick Meets New York and The Pimp, are both fun. Um, just kind of, you know, 80s rock and roll soundtrack, brass section. It's, it's just kind of something that was fun. Uh, the Pimp has got that nice, you know, sexy saxophone playing in the back. You know, it's sort of the, uh, the music that would be playing in your head if you were walking down a dark alley in New York in the 1980s and you're just imagining yeah. some, you know, saxophone player up, you know, on like the, you know, like a fourth floor walkout, you know, playing his saxophone in the alley. Like that just <laughs> kind of, you know, it's just kind of floating yeah. around in your head what that would be. Um, but G'day is probably my favorite track from the whole soundtrack. It's fun, it's cute, and it's really simple. Um, it's just got that repetitive guitar part, and then the whole rest of the instruments are there's a marching snare, they've got a couple little guitar accents and some plucking here and there, there's a brass section, and then what I think are marimbas kind of playing around in the background, and that's okay. it. It's just kind of like a steady progression. It's not flashy, but it's really fun. And I think it just describes Mick better than like mm -hmm. anything else in the whole piece. Um, so, yeah, that's why I like G'day the most of any of the tracks yeah. for this particular movie. Is that that one that goes, uh, it's been a couple days since I've listened to it, but is it do, 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 and then you like, hear like the snap maybe or maybe i'm thinking of the sequel but maybe yeah not. i i don't think it's i don't think it's that one because yeah this one is it's okay. a little bit more repetitive um and it's not it's i i know which one you're talking about uh that's kind of ah uh, i don't know which one is that is that okay um, i don't quite i don't quite remember what that one is <laughs> but yeah. okay well it's in my head but Maybe I was I was thinking of it the last time I heard it. So, but anyway, uh, those are some really good pieces. I I agree with you wholeheartedly on that. Um, so let's let's play those cues.
So sadly, we've come down to another end of Soundtrack Alley. I'd like to thank Alexander Shebel for composing Soundtrack Alley's theme music. Uh, you can find his work at xanderscores.com. So lastly today, I'll be playing That's Not a Knife, Oh Richard, The Pimp Returns, and Theme from Crocodile Dundee. Um, I really like these tracks because it even shows us how much Mick cares about Sue and how she even realizes how much of a jerk Richard is in the end. It just it really <laughs> proves that, uh, the finality of it, and that he's not good for her. It also shows like this extra energy that Peter Brest best brings to the table for even that final climactic moment in the film where uh, Mick really feels really for sue and sue realizes that she's in love with him so what did you think of these um yeah i thought uh like a lot of the other tracks they're all fun uh they're all enjoyable to listen to they definitely have a 1980s flavor to them with you know didgeridoo kind of underneath all the different layers um but the theme especially i really enjoyed that um and it the theme felt to me like the kind of music you would want to listen to, like if you were trudging through a swamp in Australia, like that, that's the kind of thing that I would want to listen to. There's a lot of, you know, like, you know, hair metal or other stuff in the eighties that just wouldn't quite work with trudging through a swamp and dodging crocodiles. But the theme song mm-hmm. specifically, like really felt like, yeah, I could totally like rock out to that as I'm like, you know, in in boots that are up to my knees and like jumping around and dodging crocodiles and trying not to be bitten by snakes and yeah I would definitely listen to that song in that situation yeah it's good though I mean it's it's a a unique style that they put these movies in and it's nice that we got both Crocodile Dundee 1 and Crocodile Dundee 2 in the 80s so it kept that classic like 80s mix that classic 80s feel to it and i really liked it i mean i found it really enjoyable um so erica where can people find you yes the easiest place would be at my website which is com. that's e-r-i-k-a-c-h-r-i-s-t-i-e.com and there you can find all of my social media and my videos and photography and all that fun stuff. Yeah. All your enjoyable video editing works. <laughs> yes. That's for another another day. <laughs> <laughs> all, all of my crazy other stuff that I do, yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you can find me at SoundtrackAlley.net. Podbean, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Of course, on Twitter at RandallAndrews1. Um, you can email me at SoundtrackAlley at Yahoo.com. And so now we'll play those last cues. And until next time, happy listening.
thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley, the podcast. I hope you take the time to review my podcast on iTunes or even listen to it on Podbean. With your review, it helps me get noticed on iTunes. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley Spotlight. If you are on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. Also, if you want to leave a comment, question, or concern, please email me at soundtrackalley at gmail.com and enjoy looking at my blog at soundtrackalley.com.